welcome back to Glittering a Turd. I hope that you're having a good day wherever you are in the world. It pleases me greatly thinking about which corner of the earth you might be listening from. Anyway, I'm recording this from the hospital because today I'm having chemo yet again. It's a busy day here again. It's literally actually always busy, so that's nothing new here. I'm feeling pretty good uh, because I've just had a nap and now I'm speaking to you. Today's guest on my podcast is Jack Rook and as you will soon hear, he is definitely a reason to be cheerful too. I already know Jack, I know that's a common theme, but I guess I'm just really lucky that I know so many legends. Today we're talking on the theme of grief and loss again and you will soon discover how beautifully Jack speaks about it. I don't want to say much more, I just really want to ensure you either read his book or watch the brilliant TV show he created for Channel 4 called Big Boys. I'm not lying when I say it's the best thing I've seen this year. So let's crack on and play today's chat. Oh, and please leave a lovely review if you're feeling generous after. Enjoy. Jack Rook. He is a writer, a mental health ambassador, comedian who has done several Edinburgh shows, uh, which is actually where my love affair really began when I came to see your show Good Grief when it transferred to Soho Theatre from Edinburgh and you're also the creator of the brilliant Channel 4 show Big Boys oh my god my heart when I think about it it skips a beat um and I will say straight off if you haven't seen it yet please sort your life out you have to watch it it's the best thing I saw this year um he's also written a book with an almost better title than Glittering a Turd it's called Cheer the Fuck Up and you should also read that I should also point out that I know Jack because of a mutual pal legend called Georgette. And I'm so grateful she introduced me to you. I don't think we should explain any more about Georgette. We'll just leave her as this sort of fantasy creature that introduces people and and creates true love affairs. So enough of Georgette and enough of the intro. Hi, Jack. Thank you so much for being here. I love you. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Straight back at you. Straight back at you. Yeah. I feel really bad. I, I will I will say for the listeners that I bought a new laptop to write series two of Big Boys on because my old one was, you know, it, it was on its dying days. Whoa, wait, wait, this... hang on a minute, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. <laughs> hang on a minute. This is season two of Big Boys. Yeah, there's a series two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that got announced ages ago, babe. <laughs> Yeah, so we're, I'm writing series two at the moment. I'm just, I just, uh, I'm writing episode four as we speak, um, which is fun, and and it's been a quite a slow process. But yeah, I basically bought a new laptop to write it on, and I realised that these new laptops don't have USB ports anymore, so I can't plug my fancy mic in. So if I sound a bit, if I sound a bit like I'm sort of on a satellite phone on the other side of the world, then um, that is because I, I'm a fool. Yeah, but also a high-flying fool, because if you can afford a new laptop, you are doing okay, Bebs. Look, I'd had my old, I'd had my old <laughs> laptop for like seven or eight years. It, I mean, it had, yeah. you know, it had, it had, 
tabs open from 2014 i swear i'm oh very God. bad at closing down my tabs i just can't say goodbye to my tabs no um you don't want to know how many i've got open at the moment it's quite hideous and probably <laughs> doesn't help the internet speed at which i have to run these podcasts from because the internet that i have here in cornwall is atrocious so anything that you're bringing to the table sound wise or otherwise it's going to be better than what I've done anyway. So thank you. It's okay. We forgive you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Shall we get on with turd chat? What, what, what is your turd, please? Well, I basically keep on being unsure what my turd should be. And I wondered, because I feel like I've had a few turds. <laughs> I've had a few turds going on. And I actually think sometimes... Um, they all sort of kind of interlink. And I, and actually what I really love about big boys is it's not just about a sort of singular issue or incident type thing. It feels like there's lots of characters and lots of different storylines and lots of different themes that it's covering and and trying to sort of, um, I suppose, make funny because I sort of, you know, a bit like yourself, like I, I really believe that humour can really help. Yes. and And it is that sort of like human instinct we have in all of us to sort of, you know, I, I feel like I laugh when things are worse. But yeah, so I don't know what my turd is. Is this bad? I really, I now, I'm now like, oh, I don't know what my turd, I've had a few turds. What do you do, Chris, when people have had a few turds? Well, we can workshop this if you'd like. We've got, yeah, we've got time. I mean, when I, obviously, if I asked you to come on, I knew that you'd probably either pick from the fact your dad died when you were 15 or that's a good turn you peaked with that one i did I, I did enter the turd arena with that one well why don't we go with that one because actually it's something that it, it's the sort of turd that 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 helped me deal with all the other turds if yeah. that makes sense yeah and it's the sort of turd that got me writing and finding all my coping mechanisms and why i sort of enjoy I suppose, having a creative outlet and why I think I sort of try and encourage people to have one. But yeah, so my, my dad, Laurie, was a black cab driver. We were sort of like, I'm like a mini him, really. We look very similar. We've both sort of got a sort of similar vibe, similar energy type thing. We spent a lot of time, like, especially when I was a teenager, like a lot of time together. I think he he sort of, by that point, when he was in his sort of late 40s, early 50s, just really wanted to spend time with like, a kid and not be working a lot because I think with my brothers he just always had to work all the time and didn't really get much quality time with them so me and him used to spend a lot of weekends together we go bowling 10 pin bowling every Saturday at the Watford Hollywood Bowl an absolute a real shithole Chris a real shithole but (laughs) a place very dear in my heart and he'd sort of take me into London a lot there's a story in Big Boys about how one time he took me to Camden Market when I was about 12 or 13 and this bloke came over to me in this like Bob Marley t-shirt and he was like hey mate do you fancy an ounce of spunk and I was like no 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 no," and then like ran off I said to my dad I was like I think that man over there just tried to sell me some spunk and he was like I think you mean skunk he's he's trying to sell you some weed boy all right yeah so we had a very like sweet quite open relationship really and then he he got diagnosed with kidney cancer very suddenly and then died 10 days later I mean it was as quick and swift as that really kind of I think the best analogy that I've always found for it it's it's a bit like 
a magician ripping the tablecloth off a table, but rather than everything like standing up, just like everything just went really fast, really quickly. And it was hard to see it as reality because it was all so quick. Like it felt like a magician had just made this mad thing happen. I, uh, when he was first diagnosed, was there any sense of hope that he might get better or was it a clear cut? It's already spread to all the places. He's very, very poorly. This isn't going to get better. Hmm. Let me let me figure this out because he'd been poorly for a couple of years, right? And he'd had mm. a sort of other, he'd had another kind of um, symptom that they just basically weren't seeing as cancer. And then once he was properly getting right. examined and scanned and everything, they were like, yeah, this is cancer and yeah, it has spread. So I felt like maybe we had like a, a couple of days of like hope and then that very quickly got dashed type thing. It's so strange. I actually don't remember most of it. Like there's a little part of my brain that sort of locked it off, if that makes sense. And I, and I suppose just because when you're a teenager, but also when you're kind of going through something quite traumatic, your your brain is sort of constantly trying to figure out coping mechanisms and ways in which you can protect yourself or just sort of get through and there's whole swathes of my teenage years and my childhood that I just don't remember that like I am quite sad about at times because I've got like a big brother's here are your best bits memory of being a teenager but I don't remember some of the stuff that was just like you know, a party or someone's birthday or, or a certain holiday. Like my friends are constantly telling me stuff that my mind has sort of wiped, I suppose, as some sort of protection mechanism. Is that because you think those moments where it would have actually been quite hard, you've blanked them because actually, as you were experiencing those moments that should have been fun, you were actually having anything but fun in your head. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, like, like my memories generally start at uni when I left home. Really, uh-huh. it's a, it's a, it was a very painful time, and it still is a very painful time. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. that's something that I always try to kind of like articulate to people in the least scariest way possible, right? Because so much of this stuff, both being ill, which you know, you know from your experience, and loving someone who's ill and and all the different angles in which it you can come at it from the biggest thing for me is to try to fear bust like i like because fear and being scared is is what stops us from i suppose like you know carrying on and 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 finding like and like propelling towards the future type thing like fear prevents the future it traps you in either the present or the past and I'm a real firm believer that like even if it's the hardest thing which it is for lots of people you've you've got to try and put one foot in front of the other foot or else you're you're glued type thing Mm -hmm. and and it's still like painful now and and I still get you know some of my friends who are in their you know now late 20s early 30s they still have a dad to go to if they need like either money or advice or they're planning this and they want this sort of person to help out or even moving house or like bank accounts or all the like life admin. Like I don't come from a family. I come from a very sort of like working class family who aren't, you know, 
kind of clued up on a lot of the stuff that now in my world as a writer and creator and someone who's self-employed and trying to do this and blah blah blah, like sometimes I'm like fucking hell I wish I just had someone (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you know I do have you know good friends thankfully and people that look out for me which is great but you do sometimes you still want your dad I always try to tell people when someone dies like it is shit and it's going to be always shit but in a more resilient way like you will learn with throughout the 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 shitness I suppose to Mm -hmm. remember how much you loved someone how how sometimes how incredible it is to miss someone so much like I definitely felt like when it was the 10 year anniversary of my dad's death a couple of years ago I, I remember being like god I miss him so much and I'm so glad I do like what a beautiful gift to miss someone that much that they can be gone for a decade from your life and you're still like there's a power in that there's the, and and because it also values the life they had and time is a concept I find really fascinating I think it's why I've like as an adult become a fan of Doctor Who <laughs> because I'm like <laughs> I just find that you know it's it's such an odd time to me is like both like a real man-made construct and it's also like the most natural thing ever it's like Mm. but it's a bit of both like how we kind of talk about it or manipulate it or use it to to attach it to our feelings or our emotions you know for me I I felt really keen with with big boys that it'd be set in a really clear time period be set in the early Mm. 2010s and to have all those pop culture references that are quite niche and specific and people would go like oh but that stops it being like timeless and you know you when people watch it in 10 years time they're gonna have to try and remember these things I'm like no it doesn't it makes it even more timely because all of those things are part of the texture of everything that you remember when you're a bereaved person or everything you remember when you you go through one of those life turd experiences like you remember who was in the x factor you remember who the prime minister was you remember what songs were in the charts you like it's it's like for me it's like an art piece it's like that's the permanence that exists in your memory so that is timeless like you can't edit that sort of stuff out I do wonder and I I mean this is going to be a question for later but when we really get into all the glittery parts and I think big boys is massively a glittery part here but how much you had to fight to say no this has to stay true to what happened although obviously you did end up changing bits of your story and I want to know about that as well but like it was is it's Jack's experience of losing a dad and going to university and coming out and all that stuff that was true to you how did you have to fight hard for that or did you sell it in quite quickly uh to use the word fight is a sort of it's an odd one because it suggests that I was sort of met with a lot of pushback like on the whole throughout most of big boys I've been really quite sort of well trusted and respected every now and then there's like a big issue that I have to like properly fight for and come out like fists ready type thing but on the whole I think you know I've been very lucky to work with producers and commissioners at channel four who have been very respectful of it and have been and have wanted to but there's definitely you know like in real life my dad died at 15 in the show he died at 17 but that was just because I was like he I, I wanted to help sort of show the tackling with grief during university and that sort of period of time okay. and and also like there's some stuff that I've changed I suppose just to slightly protect myself in a weird way 
like mm. just for that for it to be rooted in truth and rooted in experience but just slightly altered in its presentation just so that I can like cope with going through it all the time because I've maybe watched every episode like 25 30 times now and I sit in the edit as well and then I write it and then I sit on set and and give notes and watch it and it's like I've got to be able to put myself through that and not go absolutely stir crazy and I'm really lucky that I've got a great director and producer who who both are really conscious and respectful of that. I also just wanted to go back to the turd experience a little bit because in the book you describe um well, one whole chapter is called The Statue. And I, I kind of wanted to bring that up because I love, I think that was my, one of my favorite chapters and the most profound thing that I've read about losing someone at a young age and how you move forward from that. Can you explain that a bit for me, please? Yeah, I think I've always felt that somewhere in Watford, <laughs> probably in a park or in a field, there is like a version of me before my dad died. That's just somewhere. There is like a statue of myself at 15, somebody who didn't have that heaviness, who didn't have the weight of, I suppose, that realisation of mortality and that you'd lose your caregivers, you lose your loved ones and they're, is a inevitability to that that feels like a heavy lesson to learn at that age and I think a lot of people who learn it at that age and, and younger and, and around their teens feel like there is a you, you've just become a different person instantly I see mm. that there's a version of me somewhere in a field in like a blue bomber jacket and Reebok exofit high top shoes who's just like <laughs> at a festival without that heaviness without that realization mm. or that sort of profound knowing about the world I love that you acknowledge that writing a memoir at the age of how old were you when you wrote the memoir I was 25. <laughs> yeah. And um, just... I mean, same with me, like writing a writing my memoir at the age of 35. Uh, you just feel like uh, like an absolute wanker for doing it because you're like, how dare I? Like, yeah. who the fuck do I think I am? But also, why do we only think that it takes a whole long life? Like, why do we think, equate a, a long life with being able to say important shit or having learnt life's biggest lessons only when we reach, I don't know, what is the rule? 70 plus? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be able to really educate people on some of the biggest life lessons. So I'm so glad that you did write that at such a young age because of the references that you make in the book. I don't know, such as... Uh, I've written some down because my brain is mush at the moment. How to just, how to support a friend on their first night out after they've been through sh something shit. Like that is so relevant and so important for young people and not something that I think I'd ever read before and something I hadn't even considered before. And I wish someone had read that before I went on a night out and got absolutely shit faced and it was awful. <laughs> um, you know, stuff just like stuff like that. That's so nice of you to mention because I really felt like I tried to remember all the times where I felt really lonely, I suppose. Mm. And I definitely remember, I think, having those things when you go on your first night out after something 
and you really feel vulnerable and you really feel lonely and you can really go one or two ways you can want to duck out early and be like okay i did a bit i did i did a, i did an hour great fine that's enough i'm ready to go home i did it at least i broke the seal and did it or you go completely the other way which is you get absolutely rat assed and before you know it you're running your mouth you're running everything wrong <laughs> I was going to say you've got the runs. You might have the runs. Who knows? <laughs> Danny and Big Boys did. <laughs> so you know it's a it's it's a really vulnerable time, but yeah. but people don't ever because of how clinical everything can be. Nobody kind of uh, there's no advice pamphlet in the GP surgery of like how to re-socialize yourself in normal society after going through a period of isolation or feeling shit or whatever. So. I wanted the book to be fill, filled with stuff that felt authentic and modern and maybe representative of how it actually does feel to be a young person go, going through those experiences. Do you want to talk about other turds now and bring those into the picture? Because, you know, the book and Big Boys cover so many things. Like, it really, really does. It's absolutely not just about grief. Actually, what someone said... Oh, where was it? Where was it? They described Big Boys as an ode to gay straight male friendship and i thought yes yeah i never i i never sort of just wanted it to be just a gay show because like weirdly one of one of my turds isn't really you know i know for a lot of people like coming out and that whole experience is that really difficult and tumultuous um that isn't really my experience so i can't sort of claim that if that makes sense and I actually sometimes wish I mean this is maybe me like slightly siding on my provocative bit of my brain but I wish that some gay men would sort of you know be a bit more honest and open about the fact that actually a lot of white gay men now have a much easier experience than other queer counterparts and sometimes I feel like we don't need as many coming out narratives now. What we actually need is to see like queer people living lives, even boring, normal lives. I certainly feel like the stuff that I've sort of had to deal with, with, with also like other people. And, you know, I've, I've, I've had some of my closest friends have had really, really difficult mental health issues and, 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 you know, illnesses. And, you know, I, I lost a very good friend when I was 21 to suicide. And at that point, I'd already been an ambassador for Calm for like five years or whatever, like, and, and that was a really odd experience to have had to, I suppose, because I'd had a friend who me and him had spoken a lot about mental health and a lot about mental illness and suicide prevention, etc. And I think sometimes the narrative in Britain can become very diluted and basic and be like, if you just talk and open up, then, you know, you're going to be better. And it's like, no, that's a step. That's a, that's a big step, but in a much huger, larger set of actions and conversation or whatever. And also, I, I, you know, the reason I wrote the book is because I also felt like I was speaking a lot to people who were like, I know that people have got to open up, but I don't know what to say when they do. Like, no, we completely have failed to equip people with the tools to know what to say and to know how to behave. And I certainly know from people in my life who I've loved who've had uh, cancer and, and chronic illnesses and stuff, and people don't know how to react to illness and grief 
And we have not equipped people with the tools to do that. So unfortunately, it falls on the head of, let's say, the figures of those communities who are charming, gorgeous, sexy, and funny like you and me, Chris. It kind of has fallen on us to try our best to educate people. Not that there's any onus or like actual responsibility for us to, to do that, and we shouldn't have to do it all the time. But, you know, like fuck me, the, the systems at place and the government and the health bodies, that like they do not equip a culture of care, essentially. I don't think that that necessarily means that we all need to, like, police our language all the time and be really, like, pussyfoot around each other and be really, like, treat everyone really delicately. Like, that's that's not the, the thing. I think it's actually about just, like, bravery and courage. We expect people all the time to be brave and courageous. We expect people with chronic illnesses we expect nurses we expect doctors we expect so much of our society to be brave and courageous that when it comes to our responses sometimes we are like the most cowardly pricks ever and i just think we have to like create a culture of courage full circle for everyone to feel equipped and to and, and you know fair enough people can feel anxious about stuff and how they respond like that completely makes sense but that doesn't mean that you like have an excuse to get it wrong all the time or have an excuse to like blind like sort of turn a blind eye to it no i've i've heard you say many times like that the worst thing that you can do just know that the worst thing that you can do is do nothing when someone is hurting or going through something just do nothing say nothing to ignore it that's the worst thing you can do I mean, I call, you know, what we, what I'm going through, the constant overcoming, the constant overcoming. And it's in that overcoming that each hurdle that I learn something new or something different, but I'm one person with this, this experience. And even though I love writing the book and I love that people learn so much from my experience, I think it's so unique to every single person and however you get through it is your way of getting through it. Completely. I I think um, that's why it's sort of good to, share it if that makes sense because we can all learn from everyone else's individual Mm -hmm. strategy I suppose right I'm I'm really glad that you brought you know that you are happy to discuss your dad's death to start with because I do think that was your what supercharged you to live life large and also smash your career and do what you are doing today um, I'm just wondering, what are you most proud of? Hmm, what am I most proud of? I've got two answers. My jokey answer, which is not a half-jokey answer, is that I'm most proud of filming episode six of Big Boys in a Harvester. I just was really, like, when I when I found out that Harvester said yes to us filming there, I was like, oh, my God, I've smashed it. Um and then, <laughs> just because I was like, to film a scene at the Harvester Salad Bar just felt so, like, perfectly reminiscent of, like, a, wor- a certain working-class experience that I felt like, you know, we needed to see on screen. Then I was also really proud that, like, Big Boys went on Gogglebox because Gogglebox, to me, is, like, it's my favourite TV programme. It's what got me through those COVID lockdowns. And, and because it's born out of the royal family... And the idea of, you know, just what people watching telly, what us watching, people watching telly. There's just something so brilliant about what Gogglebucks says about us all as a country and how unifying it can be and how 
progressive it is and and I really just like I do feel like all of my favorite revelations or you know moments with my mum and my family I've I've ever had have been in front of the telly and have just been whilst it's like been there ticking away I know it sort of sounds like I'm weird like I'm putting like a sort of metric success thing like I got on this but it was more just that I was like wow this thing that has been such a huge comfort to me and something that I admire in its concept and in what it does like I'm really proud that my work is like the final 15 minutes of an episode of Gogglebox I was like that is my maybe my proudest achievement I'd love for it to be like something else that's a bit more you know moral of the story like you know, I'm really proud of stuff I've done with Calm and of Calm and how it's grown. And I'm really proud of lots of my friends and the car. Like, there's loads of stuff I'm proud of, but I do just think yeah, <laughs> that, that Google box to me was just like a moment, a real yeah. emotional. I remember I had all my mates around to watch it and we just all sat there with our like mouths open. And my friend Nicola, who's who's in Derry Girls, was just like, because Derry Girls never got on Google box. Loads of comedy shows don't get on Google box because it's, comedy so subjective so it's quite difficult to gauge a sort of communal reaction or stuff like that and so for for big boys to make it on now I honestly just think it was like my proudest achievement I'd be too I'm so glad that you're so proud of that proud of that because you should be and and it's it is so great because then you're watching other people's reactions to it and that must have been shit scary but also so good people that you really respect that's cool it was really cool so Let's wrap this up a little bit. One thing, I need you to tell me something that you've learnt that you'd want to share with us um, about your turd or the glittering of it. I would say the one thing I've learnt in sort of process of glittering my turd, and it's something that I really try to stress to people. So I've, I've written stuff for TV and for books or whatever, but I still don't consider myself to be like a writer, if that makes sense. Like I don't read loads. I'm not a big literary head. People all like say like a great piece of literary fiction or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, never, never, read, never read it, whatever. And I think it's because writing to me has always been the most phenomenal creative outlet. And I encourage it to anyone in any way, whether it's just in your iPhone notes or if it's on the back of a bus ticket or if it's just a dictaphone like a voice note thing like 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 writing to me is I suppose just the creation the articulation of how you're feeling or some sort of creative like expulsion of like madness or mess or whatever's going on in your your mind that you can you can either have just for yourself or you can put out for anyone and you can kind of learn a lot about maybe your subconscious or learn about how your creative mind works or learn about your coping mechanisms or like something happened to me three days ago that I'll talk about because it's quite funny right great I was sat at home and all of a sudden I got a phone call from my sister-in-law Michelle my phone it it came up Michelle number on my phone and I was like what like oh no like racing through my head was so many emotions because I was like oh I've not seen one was like oh my god I've not seen this number call me and this number used to call me all the time Mm -hmm. second I was like who's got her phone has her phone been stolen 
And like, whatever. Third, I was like, maybe her phone number's been assigned to someone in like, I don't know, some tiny state in America and they're calling me from it. They've got, I just, my mind was like racing at 150 miles an hour. I I didn't answer the call. Immediately after I rang my mum and I was really upset and quite like shook and was like, mum, I just got a phone call from Michelle and she's, you know, been dead for two years now. And my mum went, and my mum and my niece in the background, who's around my age, started giggling. And I was like, if they've played a prank call by calling me off Michelle's phone, that's disgusting and really immoral and really wrong. And then they were like, no, 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 no. We called you off the Amazon Alexa. <laughs> and it turns out that my sister-in-law, Michelle, had registered her number which had registered my mum's Alexa. And so when you say, Alexa, call someone, (laughs) my mum and my niece didn't realise. And we found it all so funny because I... (laughs) You could be... (laughs) But if it had been a prank, like I wouldn't have massively surprised me because... You know, you've you've spoken about how your nan used to prank you, and you used to just prank each other all the time. So, oh, yeah. like, oh, that is the ultimate prank. It's the ultimate prank to ring someone from a dead woman's phone. Agreed. <laughs> However, no, it was just an Amazon Alexa glitch that meant that that technically it was like her phone ringing me through the the Alexa. Anyway, so and then wow. I, like, I was quite shook by it and I didn't find the funny side of it for at least 24 hours. I was still quite like, like shaken up by it. And then I wrote for like hours just about, I just wrote the story of it happening and kind of that like feeling that actually for a split second, I was like, oh my God, she's calling me. And I felt an urgency to answer in the same way that, two three years ago when she used to call me I would answer straight away because I was just like if she's calling me she needs me so I'm gonna answer so like it was just weird that for a split second that propulsion came back automatically just seeing it and it made me just write about the behaviors that we have when we are frightened or caring for someone or or you know or or there like that like you know, either answer straight away or don't answer, take a moment to figure out what it might be and then call back. Like, it was just like a little thing that just sparked off this idea that I needed to write about it. And I needed to write about, like, the emotion that I felt seeing that number call me after two years. And, like, I don't know, maybe I'll never, maybe that bit of writing will just be for me and I'll never ever share it. Or it could be something that I write about one day or whatever. But, like, and it's also so funny that it was just fucking Amazon fucking Alexa. (laughs) But, like, just that I held on, that feeling was there immediately. That feeling that, like, (gasps) like, that was the first feeling before the, oh, wait a second, she's been dead two years. Why is her phone calling me type thing? so that's why i think like i would that's the advice i'd give to anyone is to know that doesn't matter how good you are at writing inverted commas like you don't need to be a proficient writer we you can write or speak or articulate those thoughts and that does help i think to glitter a turd yeah and i really hope that that ends up in big boy season two 
Maybe in some way, but I, do you know, I'm worried that Amazon Alexas didn't exist then. Oh, yeah. I'll have a think about when Amazon Alexa. I'm going to just open a tab on my. As always, <laughs> I'm just opening up a tab one, on my web browser to be like Amazon Alexa. <laughs> Here we go. There's another tab there. And? Oh! Amazon Alexas are eight years old today. Shut up. Oh! Oh, wait, no, that was in America. Oh, my God. Apparently, Amazon Alexas became available in the UK on the 28th of September, 2016. Do you want to know what the 28th of September is? The day my dad died. Shut up. Okay, I think these are two strong signs. (laughs) That, that, That actually dead people can talk to you through Amazon Alexas, essentially. I mean, that is our future. That's what we're looking at. I'm so, like, that would never have, like, just for you to have that visceral feeling of oh, that that gut-lurching feeling of, shit, her name in front of you like that, wanting to hear her voice, but knowing, like, because, you know, life doesn't work like that. She's not going to be alive and you're not going to hear her. So how do you deal with that? Like that, and then to write it down is great. But now, do you think? Um, yeah. Now you are obviously right. So you've just—I know this is going off on a tangent, but I'm just interested to know because you say you were—you were so desperate. If she had been alive, you'd be so desperate to answer straight away because there would be a sense of urgency because you, she was unwell and you deeply cared about her then, and and you needed to know that she was okay. Do you feel like that about all of your friends now because you have seen the fragility of life? You have seen that if, would that hang over your head if you didn't answer a mate's phone call now because you were busy doing something? Or like, how how does that play out in other relationships now? Well, it's a really good question because, yeah, certainly having gone through that with Michelle and having lost a friend to suicide, I'm now constantly worried about all my friends all the fucking time. If they're having a bad time or they're having a low time where they let me know, I'm always like overly paranoid and overly worried. So it definitely has like a lasting long-term impact, hugely so. And that's something that I still have to sort of deal with and and tackle now. You know, I I can really Mm -hmm. get myself in a bit of a tizz worrying about someone i guess what what i think you've probably gotten to is um uh, without really knowing but I, I i know it because having been through well having dealt with a terminal illness for so long is like you can decide so much easier like you can cherish things like in a new way because you have seen that fragility. But not. I think if you can find the sweet spot of not constantly worrying about them and not ignoring them and regretting if you miss that last phone call, but having this middle bit where you're like, I cherish these humans in my life because I know that their life could end at any point. And similarly, you should cherish your own life. But, you know, I say this time and time again, why does it have to take something as awful as your best mate dying when he was when you were 21 or like me being diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 23 for us to like actually get to the point where we're like this is what matters isn't it annoying yeah yeah (laughs) it really is i mean (laughs) and i mean like this is i suppose why like 
we're putting so much time and dedication into trying to make sure that people don't get to that stage. It's annoying for us. And, and, you know, I, I also like, like can't imagine what the annoyance is like for you. And, 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 you know, I tried very hard to try and imagine what the annoyance was like for, for Michelle and, and, and for my friend who was struggling with mental illness and stuff like that. But it's, um, I think, you know, most of life is about sharing the lessons you learn and and getting that back in some way okay right I, I mean I could speak to your day I'm sorry I'm just banging on and keep asking you questions but um f- this is something I do we have to cover one thing tangible or mythical or otherwise that has helped you to glitter your turd hmm. broad city is a tv show that is just my favorite tv show have you watched it no so you said tangible so i feel like i could mention a tv show but there's a show called broad city that you can watch on in the uk i think right now you can watch it on amazon if you've got like a paramount plus subscription it's quite difficult it used to be really easy to watch and now it's becoming quite hard but it's about two girls in new york called abby and alana who basically just get up to all sorts of mischief together and they're best mates and it's the biggest inspiration behind big boys chris I will try and get a way for you to watch it because it is what sort of like inspired me the most. And it's really just about like two girls having fun and and having like going through sort of silly experiences alongside the heavier stuff, like realizing you're queer or, or, or whatever and being a woman and fucking the politics of that currently in America. Like it's just, yeah, it's a brilliant show. I would a hundred percent recommend broad city i think it's helped me glitter at least two of my turds amazing i've made a note thank you right we're now going to listen to um one of my listeners called rhiannon um about how they have glittered their turd great hi chris my name is rihanna and i am 24 my turd is that when i was 20 i began receiving therapy for general anxiety disorder and ocd which were both linked to an overwhelming fear that my mum would die of breast cancer. This fear was grounded in the knowledge that my maternal grandmother had died of breast cancer aged 39 when my mum was 14, and I'd convinced myself that the same would happen to her. Ironically, a few weeks into my therapy sessions, my mum was diagnosed with stage 2B breast cancer. It was the worst day of my life. She had a double mastectomy and is still clear four years later. Um, so aside from that being a massive amount of glitter, glitter also came in the form of an understanding of breast cancer and the ways it can be detected early, both of which have empowered me to overcome my fear. I now no longer see cancer and breast cancer as a death sentence, but instead something that needs to be understood um, and shouted about so loudly. I'm now the loudest advocate for checking chess, especially at this age when you're told that it's unlikely um, and Copperfield has literally changed my life. I will also receive mammograms from the age of 30 due to my family history and words cannot express how grateful I am for this. Oh, wow. Wow. That, I mean, I talk about like knowledge being power all the time, but like knowledge is power that sense of like control that we feel is so unattainable when it comes to cancer, it, it does exist. And I think her just having that knowledge and seeing her mum survive and thrive with it is crucial. It's incredible. 
and also you've created or helped create a network and a framework and a, and a, and a tangible thing in Copperfield that can enable people to utilize that knowledge and spread it like yeah it's a charity and it's got some sort of you know strong simple clear messaging but it's also like a community and a and a, mm-hmm. and a broader sort of sense of of somewhere that people can go like yeah thank you um incredible thank you right uh this is literally the last thing have you got a drink nearby no but i need to get one because i'm really thirsty i think that's why i sort of keep on um burping and yawning let me go i've got a barocca <laughs> over there let me go grab my barocca amazing Great. as in a barocca um you can't hear me yet as in a barocca that you've um diluted in water yes baby same oh my god with the barocca babes barocca babes. there's a song okay. in big boys about barocca in episode five, Peggy and Shannon sing to Jack when he's got a hangover. Get on the Barocca, he's off his fucking rocker. Na, 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 na. Na, na. Well, that is why. Cheers to Barockas. Cheers to your turds, so all of them. My turd and Rihanna's turd and everyone else's turd. Thank you for listening. Whee! There's so much brilliance in that chat and I just want a moment to absorb it all again. I cannot agree with her more about the need to create a culture of courage and to equip everyone to deal with turds. I also love that Jack thinks life is about sharing the lessons you learn and I'm so glad and honoured he shared such valuable lessons with me and you. Um, I can't wait to see what he creates next, um, including, of course, Big Boys Series 2. Thank you, Jack, for the chat. Thank you, Rhiannon, for sharing your turd with us. And a massive thanks to you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.